With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 379. It's titled... Do we even need leaders? Last week, Lapril and I were driving from Phoenix to Tucson. We wanted to listen to a podcast, so I checked out my friend Joshua Sheets' podcast to see if there was an episode I found interesting. We decided to listen to a bonus episode. It's the strategic background on the conflict with Russia, Ukraine, and the West. In the episode, Joshua quotes extensively from the book, The Next 100 Years, A Forecast for the 21st Century by George Friedman. As soon as I heard the title of the book, I wanted to turn the episode off. I haven't read the book. I'm unfamiliar with the author, but I'm extremely skeptical of long-term forecasts. But then Joshua mentioned that Friedman predicted that there would be a Russian-initiated war in 2020. Well, it's 2022. That's pretty good. Maybe we should listen. Friedman is a geopolitical forecaster and strategist in international affairs. He was born in Hungary, and he is the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, an online publication that analyzes and forecasts the course of global events. In the book, Friedman writes, conventional analysis suffers from a profound failure of imagination. It imagines passing clouds to be permanent and is blind to powerful long-term shifts taking place in the full view of the world. Friedman's view is that politicians and leaders are rational actors, and that the world is like a game of chess, where on the surface there are many potential moves in this grand chess game. But most of them are dumb moves. Grandmasters can see a chessboard, recognize the patterns immediately, and identify the one or two best logical moves. Friedman believes that's how geopolitics work, that given these long-term forces of countries, strategic alliances, that there's only certain moves, and that what happens is somewhat inevitable. Listening to that reminded me of Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets. We discussed that book back in episode 203 when we compared poker to chess. Duke is an author, speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space. She is a former professional poker player. Of chess, she writes, chess contains no hidden information and very little luck. The pieces are all there for both players to see. Pieces can't randomly appear or disappear from the board or get moved from one position to another by chance. No one rolls dice after which, if the roll goes against you, your bishop is taken off the board. If you lose at a game of chess, it must be because there were better moves that you didn't make or didn't see. She contrasts that with poker, which she writes is a game of incomplete information. 
It's a game of decision-making under conditions of uncertainty over time. In poker, valuable information remains hidden. There is also an element of luck in any outcome. You could make the best possible decision at every point and still lose the hand because you don't know what new cards will be dealt and revealed. It is seductive and comforting to believe the world is like a chess game with rational actors, but it seems much more like a game of poker. I read recently a chess-like analysis of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It was an article recommended by Dave Pell's Next Draft newsletter. The article is titled, Possible Outcomes of the Russo-Ukrainian War and China's Choice. It's written by a strategic analyst based in China, Hu Wei. He is the vice chairman of the Public Policy Research Center in China and the chairman of Shanghai Public Policy Research Association. He's writing for a Chinese audience. He discussed in his piece that Vladimir Putin is in a tight spot, that his aim was to divert attention away from Russia's domestic crisis by defeating Ukraine with a blitzkrieg in one week's time, replace its leadership and cultivate a pro-Russian government. But obviously that blitzkrieg failed and Russia has been unable to meet its objectives. Wei writes, at this point, Putin's best option is to end the war decently through peace talks. However, what is not attainable on the battlefield is also difficult to obtain at the negotiating table. In any case, this military action constitutes an irreversible mistake. Now, here we have a leader, Putin, looking supposedly at a chessboard. He invades Ukraine, and he's wrong. It's a huge mistake. Most of the world has turned against Russia with sanctions. It's an unjustifiable war. Launching a nuclear warhead would make things even worse, and Wei says would be unwinnable. Now, I want to believe that Putin is rational, and there will shortly be a negotiated end to hostilities. But I don't know. Friedman thinks political leaders will act in a similar way based on the small set of rational choices. That if Putin wasn't there, there would have been another leader that would have done the exact same thing. I, I have a difficult time accepting that. I googled, why do we need leaders? And here's a sampling of the first few results from Google. Jerome Tallard, he is an associate professor of finance at Babson College, wrote, Leadership listens, inspires, motivates, and gives a direction, a common goal to aspire to. Someone else wrote, Leaders ensure safety and security. Angelina Fiba, she's, she is a writer and yoga instructor, wrote, Even on our leaders' worst days, their presence is preferable to a world in which they don't exist. While we could survive without leaders, competition over resources would likely lead to violence and destabilization, and it would stall our ability to innovate as a society. Imagine a workplace in which there is no one to resolve conflicts and no one to have the final say. It takes visionaries to motivate groups of people to unite around a common goal. Jimmy Guterman, he's a senior editor at Harvard Business Review, asked sort of the same question that I'm asking. He writes, but as the world waits to see who will take over from generations of authoritarian rule, it's worth wondering, why do we take for granted that there's got to be someone at the top? Is it a social construct? 
Are we hardwired for it? I find it interesting that there was no leader who decided who the first four results were for this Google query. It was an algorithm. Rarely is the world changed permanently by a top-down decision of a leader, a king or queen or president. What happens is mostly the result of bottom-up decisions by individuals doing their best to cope with uncertainty. Those collective decisions lead to emerging phenomena, trends, and forces. We have demographic trends. There are productivity and technological improvement, innovation, financial trends, inflation, asset bubbles. We have climatic shifts as individuals' decisions interact with the natural environment. Now, some leaders can have an outsized impact, at least temporarily, usually by implementing some brash change, like Putin invading Ukraine, but those often lead to unintended consequences. Most leaders will not be remembered. Most of us won't be remembered either. Our time on Earth is such a short blip compared to its long history. I've been slowly making my way through David Graeber and David Wenlow's book, The Dawn of Everything. In there, they share examples of leaderless societies. There have been thousands of early human settlements, many more than I would have imagined, that came and went. And often we have no idea why they disappeared. There were so many people. And there are examples of those societies where they didn't have a leader or there might have been temporary leadership during certain seasons of the year, such as hunting season. The book discusses how in the 1970s, archaeologists in Ukraine and Moldova discovered huge megacities, cities that were inhabited from about 4100 to 3300 BC, 800 years. The sites contained thousands of houses. These were rectangular houses, about 16 feet wide and 32 feet long, built of, of dirt and timber frames on stone foundations. These houses were arranged in the cities in a circular pattern. Great rings like a, a tree trunk with spaces between the rings. In the innermost ring, there was a big gap. Archaeologists expected to find something dramatic there, some big building, a temple, a palace. But no, the hole in the middle, the center, was empty, perhaps for assemblies or ceremonies. These cities in Ukraine didn't leave any written records, so archaeologists are just trying to piece together how these megacities functioned. The total population of each megasite is estimated to be in the thousands, perhaps well over 10,000 individuals. And these cities were only six to nine miles apart, which means they had some shared resources, but their ecological footprint was surprisingly light. These sites were probably maybe only seasonally inhabited, sort of people coming and going, we don't know. But there was no evidence, there is no evidence of kings, of leaders, of a centralized government, of an elite, no human sacrifices, no evidence of battles or wars. When they excavated individual houses, they found slight variations in domestic rituals, such as the type of art that they did. It wasn't all the same. They described it as each household being like an artist collective, with each having their unique aesthetic style. 
These households would sometimes cluster together into groups of three to ten families, and then they would have kind of a central meeting house also. And then even some of the families, the way they structured the cities, formed neighborhoods or wards, bigger and bigger groups, building up from the bottom. When they consider how these big cities operated, they, they've looked at more modern society and speculate that they had some type of economic cooperation and mutual aid, working closely with their neighbors, taking turns to perform communal tasks, that there needed to be coordination, but there was coordination among smaller groups of people, activities such as moving flocks to higher pastures the demands of milking or shearing their herds. These were big societies, and they, they had gardens, they grew food, they had a wide variety of food that they grew based on the archaeological evidence. They traded with other societies, bringing in precious things from hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. But because it had to be coordinated, each household couldn't decide on their own what they were going to do. They, there had to be some coordination. The authors write that these simple economies are rarely all that simple because they include logistical challenges of striking complexity, resolved on a basis of intricate systems of mutual aid, all without any need of centralized control or administration. I didn't realize societies like that existed. I figured there always had to be a king or a queen, some leadership, but here, 800 years And then it disappeared without any record. They have no idea why. And I thought about that. Like, who do we depend on? It's more than just our family, friends, and neighbors. But I don't depend on President Biden or President Trump when he was in office, nor the governor of Arizona or Idaho, the mayor of my town. I don't interact with them, and they have little impact on my life. They do make decisions, obviously. But how often do those individual decisions trickle down to us as individuals? Graeber and Wenlow write, Very large social units are always, in a sense, imaginary. By large social units, nations, cities. Or to put it in a slightly different way, they continue, there is always a fundamental distinction between the way one relates to friends, family, neighborhood, people, and places that we actually know directly, and the way one relates to empires, nations, and metropolises, phenomenon that exists largely or at least most of the time in our heads. We don't interact with our Congress person or other leaders. We interact, people we see locally, but we also rely on systems and algorithms which are made up of people, strangers doing their jobs, performing their roles. Why do they do that? How is it society actually operates without somebody telling other people what to do all the time? The economist Robert Putnam says it's due to social capital, which are features of society he describes, such as trust, norms, and networks that can improve the efficiency of society by facilitating coordinated actions. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Yesterday, LaPro and I drove to the doctor. I trusted that people in the county or, or state would keep the road system up, keep it in repair, that people driving would obey the rules, this network, that there would be gasoline at the pump. I had never been to this doctor before. I have never met the office staff. The doctor was assigned to me on my health insurance card that my health insurance company sent me in the mail. I have never met anyone at Blue Cross of Arizona. I went because a stranger watched one of my YouTube videos and said there was a spot on my forehead I needed to check out. Did I have forehead cancer or skin cancer? Turns out I'm okay. And one advantage of YouTube is I've done it for sporadically for over a decade. So I could go, I could go back 10 years ago and see, yeah, I have a spot on my forehead and it hasn't changed a whole lot. But the doctor came in, complete stranger. He didn't have a white coat on. How did I know he was a doctor? I didn't ask for his ID. I didn't ask him who his leader was, who his boss. I just assumed that the system worked, that he was there because he was the doctor. I trusted him. Afterward, we went to a drive through restaurant. I never met those people before. I trusted that they wouldn't poison us with their food. We're staying at a resort. I don't know the manager of the resort. I don't know any of the staff. I just trust that they will do their jobs, keep the promises that they make as businesses, services, and brands. There are enforcement mechanisms in place that keep the system moving. Stephen Ack points out what these three enforcement mechanisms are. The first is just personal integrity, the moral code that we have. People will do the right thing, and generally they do. A second enforcement mechanism is that individuals not only do things because it's the right thing to do, they also want to have a continuing relationship, that they're playing a long game, and so they're not going to take advantage of somebody because they might meet them again, and it's just a reciprocal-type relationship. It's personal. They don't want their reputation harmed. 
A third enforcement mechanism is third-party mechanisms, structures that exist in case things don't work out. Now, in this case, perhaps that's leadership, but it could be the court system. It could be a credit card company. I mentioned that we ordered McDonald's in Oakland pickup. They never brought the order out. The doors of the restaurant were shut. They were locked. The employees ignored us. The system didn't work. So we filed a dispute with American Express. There's that third mechanism. These enforcement mechanisms allow a leaderless system in some regards. It's amazing how we can go for days and not interact with a neighbor or friend, yet get what we want. We've been at this resort for five days. I hadn't had a conversation with anyone other than Laprell, except when we checked in. Not conversing with people isn't healthy, but the system works so that we could do that. We finally, we were sitting by the pool. I was working on the podcast, prepping for it, and I started up a conversation with the couple next to us and their son. And I thought, that's other than the doctor, it's one of the few conversations I've had in the last month, not with family and friends. Yet, it all still kind of works together. I have thought about this leadership situation and do we need leaders because I actually had a call with Joshua Sheets a month or so ago, and he asked me an intriguing question. He asked, why aren't you building a family business that your grandkids and your great-grandchildren could work in? I don't have any grandkids, and I never had considered it. My son, Brett's worked with me for three years. My oldest son, Camden, worked with me a couple years, about four or five years ago. But it got us thinking. We, we had a family meeting. We talked about it. And we're going to expand. My oldest son's going to join us full time next month. But I don't want to be their boss. I don't want to be their leader. I want partners that we can build and expand and grow something together. Stay tuned for what that is, but it will include at least one additional episode of the podcast weekly. But then we're discussing, my, my one son says, well, what, what's, our, what's our PTO policy? And I, I, I said, we don't, we don't have a PTO policy. What do you think it should be? Well, let's have an unlimited PTO policy because the goal is to be of help to listeners and to members. And we'll do what it takes to do that and to expand. We're not building this elaborate hierarchy. We're a team. I saw this at our investment advisory firm. I worked remotely for a decade. I didn't have a boss. We had an executive committee that I was a member of. So there was some leadership. But by and large, we just went about being of help to our clients as we managed their assets. It's possible to coordinate and to serve and to grow without having a president, one man or woman on top. Businesses are, are struggling with this as they look at what is the future of work in leadership? Is it possible to do it all remotely? Or should there be some type of, of hybrid situation where sometimes you come to the office and sometimes you don't? There was an article in The Economist that I'll link to. It quoted Jamie Dimon, who says re remote working kills creativity hurts new employees, and slows down decision-making. The benefit of being in the office is spontaneous face-to-face -face interactions. And if you're only there a couple days a week, the mathematics suggests that your odds of running into two workers running into each other are about 64% lower than they were if everyone worked in the office. 
But there's also proximity bias. If someone's working remotely, there's a subconscious tendency to value and reward those that are there physically. This all needs to be worked out and explored, but it it is one of those leadership questions. How do we structure our work? How do we coordinate? And do we need a person on top to do that? We've discussed decentralized autonomous organizations, which are usually started with a small group of individuals that have an idea, they have an initiative, they launch these online communities with a treasury function, a governance function, a voting function, but there isn't necessarily one leader. Some of the DAOs are working just great. Others have sort of a little chaotic. It seems that there are times where we need a leader. It's often easier to have a leader because why don't we just have a boss that tells us what to do? But it doesn't always have to be that way. I, when we were driving back across the country in Kansas, we saw these huge flocks of starlings. They made these incredible patterns, just coordinating from one starling to the other, but no real leaders. It just happened. Or, but following a leader sometimes is easier if you just want people to tell you what to do. But we've seen that societies have existed for hundreds of years without leaders without a king. What we need is leadership, people that can lead by example, that can inspire, that can try things, start things, take initiative. They can serve. Often that's local, just coming up with an idea and trying it out and seeing how it works. That's different than somebody that just wants to be the boss and tell people what to do. That is so old school. And I think in many cases, workers, that's why they quit because of poor leadership. So the world needs leadership, not bosses, not dictators, because much of what happens in the world happens from the bottom up. Emergent phenomena, complexity. Often it's people just choosing themselves to launch something, to try something. And it's that trust. It's that social capital and that enforcement mechanisms and the commonality and common goals that allow societies to continue for hundreds of years, well past the lifetime of any one member. So what do you think? Can we survive without leaders? Let me know. That is episode 379. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. Plus Membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons 
to help you make better portfolio decisions. You'll also access a community of over 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Restless Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.